It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast, Adam Collins with you, Jeff Lemon, down the line with me, season 13, episode 19. I've got a beanie on in London where it is. I think it's the coldest day since 2009 or something like that. I caught on the radio this morning, Jeff. It was minus six when I woke up and it's steady now. It's minus two outside. So even with the heating on, even with a blanket on, I'm still going to go to the Henry Mancini for our recording today. Hello. That sounds less impressive than when you told me before hitting record that it was the coldest day ever in London um, <laughs> since 2009. That's a Crickviz coldest day ever since records yeah. began, yeah. you know, because I was thinking if you'd had the hottest ever day in London and the coldest in the span of six months, that would have been quite an achievement. That's you know, true. The 40 degree day that London had during the summer. So no, coldest since 09, less impressive. I, I walked past the chap yesterday when it was bloody freezing as well who was um, wipe, scraping the ice off the front of his car. And I kind of like looked at him, gave him the thumbs up and said, oh, it's hard, hard work for you. And he goes, mate, they talk about climate change. Um, there'll be a lot of people. Today. Oh, that old one. There'll be a lot of people yeah. out here saying, what about climate change? People on Twitter with like a male name followed by seven numbers who will be yep. very angry about the cold weather because, you know, climate change was meant to do away with that or, or something along those lines. Yep. Yes. We had a cold snap here before Christmas, I think it was, Jeff, just before I got back so I got back on December the I think I got back on December the 17th actually which is now going to be an auspicious day in Australia I suppose given the blow up this week I think Paul Kelly can write a song about December 17 yeah Uh, all the lyrics will be there so it was make it a national tradition I think we could I want to get it on a t-shirt actually you factor on December 17 I think that that sort of runs quite nice quite neatly across a t-shirt doesn't it um Mm -hmm. you fucking Mm -hmm. dog nice nice (laughs) italic font (laughs) Anyway, so it's cold. That's what I was There's a lot to talk about on the show. Uh, the women's IPL, huge TV deal, women's 19s World Cup, upsets galore. There's some chaos in the West Indies when isn't there. The Steve Smith BBL Roadshow uh, kicks into another mm-hmm. gear this week. He's also off to Sussex. There's a bit of nerd pledge. Some fun stuff happening between Ireland and Zimbabwe. Plenty of... Uh, different connotations and permutations around the one-day World Cup Super League. Mm -hmm. And that'll be our show. Lots to do. But but there's one very important thing to do before we start. I need to quickly tell a story. I played a game of pub cricket on Sunday, the Yarra Pub League. You know, if you've listened to this show over the course of a number of years, you know that my heart belongs forever to the Dan O'Connell RIP, the, the pub that is currently sitting empty. It's like a... It's like walking past a coffin showroom. It's just a just a sad thing. But um, I got a an SOS message during the week from Toby Kingsley, who used to be the bartender at the Dan O'Connell um, and who for the last few years has been running an auspicious joint called The Cherry Tree in Richmond. And he'd managed to keep it alive through COVID, doing like a mobile pub thing, driving the, the pub's ute around with a sound system in the back and serving people delivery beers to their houses and all kinds of stuff that they got up to to try to keep the pub ticking over during the two winters of lockdown and all the rest of it. So he sends me this message and he says, we're one short for the weekend. Do you want to play? It's been a four-year odyssey for the cherry tree trying to score its first win. They'd never won. They'd been turning out for four seasons and been beaten in every single game that they had ever played. And I was like, this sounds like my kind of situation, right? I need to get involved with this. So I went down. Things aren't going so hot. 7.59, I think it was. 
they've listed me to come in at 10. I was playing around with someone's junior's bat, this like tiny little light bat, and I thought, well, this would be funny. I'll just go and, you know, normally I get the biggest bat I can find because I'm a giant. And I was like, what if I just go the other way and get the smallest bat I can find? Anyway, ninth wicket partnership of 25, get them up to 123. We're like, eh, kind of in the frame here. So how, how, many, how many of that did you get? How many of the, of the 23? I got, I got 11, which is, you know, I'd rarely make double figure. So I was pleased with that. But I was even more pleased with the fact that I got run out off the last ball turning for a two that was never there just on principle. I was like, <laughs> run the second. You've got to run the second and see if you can, you know, if they stuff up the throw, you get an extra run. I've been very hard on that with limited overs players. So mm. I had to live my values. Uh, so that was, that was what I was most proud of, you know, uh, hit one over mid-off. I don't think I've ever hit one over mid-off. But the point is this. The point is that some brilliant bowling off the top from a, uh, everybody pulled together. They f- said they fielded better than they ever have and the cherry tree got their first ever win. The first day I rocked up, bang, they're on the board. They're in the book. They've got a win. And I have never seen a celebration like it post a pub cricket <laughs> game than this lot who who put four years of heartache behind them. So, Do you sing know, the song? What's, what's, the what's, what's the song for the tree? They didn't have a song. That was the thing. They were like, well, we've never won before, so we never had to think about what the song was going to oh. be. There was a lot of debate about what the song should be. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's quite the thing. That, that sounds like in the, in the winter we were discussing who you might play pub cricket for um, into mm. the future. It sounds like you found your new home. Like you can't now play for anyone else. You're part of the inaugural victory for the cherry tree. I don't even know where it is. Where that's is the cherry true. tree? It's on. It's it's just past the the match factory off Church Street, down the bottom end of Richmond. Oh yeah. When you're coming down uh, south of Swan Street. Oh, so um, where the Great Britain was the before. River. Uh, and and then you turn off, you get into the boondocks in the back. It yep. was a. Uh, I think Ron Barassi had something to do with the cherry tree at one okay. stage. Okay. Might have might have been a partial owner or or something like that. Nice one. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear you're on the board. Uh, next time you play, Jeff, you should unleash mm. your Woodstock. I don't think you got a Woodstock in in Australia, do you? I think that's um. No, I haven't got one yet. I need to get one fitted up when I come over for the Ashes this year. I'll I'll, I'll be in Nottingham and I'll go to the showroom and, and get the full deal. But I will be playing again on the 26th with many Final Word people because the Final Word 11. He's going up against the Newtown Browns. So if you want to be involved with that game, Birchgrove Oval, trying to make something good out of the 26th of January by getting on a really nice turf wicket by the harbour and playing some ridiculously not very good cricket. Uh, Come down. You might get a game. Who knows? If we have more people who show up than 11, then we might just rotate everybody in and out. We'll figure something out. You can have some fun. Come down, meet some people. Have a good time. You you have Sydney. a well. You have the unbeaten record to defend as well. We we've never lost the it's final true. word eleven in in four attempts. I think it is. So, yeah, pressure mm. on your shoulders. This is the as fourth. Captain. This is the fourth. Sorry, yeah. but uh, while we're on the topic of catching up with other final worders, there's been a great response to our call out for anybody who wants to run either. It's become now the Edinburgh Half Marathon, the Edinburgh Full Marathon, or the London Marathon. Mm-hmm. All three options are there. We're all fundraising to the same link, which Jeff you kindly put in the show notes last week. But the idea originally is that for the Lord's Taverners, I will be running the half marathon on the 28th of May up in Edinburgh. But now there've been a couple of our listeners who want to do the full marathon. That's cool. And we've also got spots, which are pretty rare. It's hard to get a London marathon spot through a charity, but the tabs have kindly given us some of them. So if that's 
something you want to do in April, uh, do let us know as soon as possible. And the um, the half marathon, there are loads of spots. So if you want to run with me and put on a Lord's Tavern, a singlet, we'll probably create like a final word badge or something. We can stick to it and um, we can all start training together over the next couple of months ahead of the 28th of May. And that's all for the Lord's Tabs, um, Jeff, who we're talking about as often as we can because they they do good things. They're, they're good people in our cricket world. And, um, and at the moment, our only ask of you is to simply sign up to their newsletter. That's it. You just get the newsletter and then you decide if you want to do anything about what you read about in the newsletter, a lot of which is doing fun things and some of it's doing not fun things like running marathons. There is a link in the show notes. If you need to type it into a browser, it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Tavs sign up. Whack it into your web browser, your internet explorer browser. <laughs> um, and <laughs> they've discontinued that, haven't they? I'm Sadly. pretty sure that IE's gone to the grave. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I'm sure there are some people still running it on their um, disconnected old CRT boxes out there. It'll be that first and it'll be Safari. Mm. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite nice, actually. There'll, there'll be a really big contingent of final words. It's, it's, the, it's the third May bank holiday. There are three May bank holidays this year because one's for the coronation, one's at the start of the month, and mm-hmm. they've got the one at the end. So, yeah, make a weekend of it. I'm taking the girls up there. Um, in fact, I won't say by whom. We've been offered um, accommodation through the final word as well through the Discord channel. So um, we'll be um, staying up in Leith. It'll be a great weekend. So come and join us, have some fun. And if you want, come and run 21 kilometres with me. Very good. All right, this women's RPL deal, not a small thing. given that, I mean, they've only got five teams lined up so far, if my understanding is correct. And yet they've managed to put together something that's worth over 100 million Australian, which basically outstrips every T20 league in the world aside from the other IPL. It it completely repudiates that old line about women's sport just isn't commercially viable. So it's 117 million US dollars across the the deal, which works out to roughly $900,000 per game. So, you know, pretty much a million bucks a game. There are only 23 games in season one. You're right, there are five teams. So there was this announcement a few weeks ago. I don't think we spoke about it on the podcast, but a little bit disappointing that they haven't linked up the sides with the men's teams to create that fandom, which they did mm. with the BBL and 100, and, and that, that's been a successful model in other countries. But five sides initially, 23 games, including two semis and a final, um, and, yeah, big money. So Viacom got the Guernsey, but they were in a bidding war with an auction with Disney, Sony. So all the big dogs were all in it trying to win this product and and Viacom Mm. came out on top. And I think that line about it being the second most lucrative T20 comp in the world is just about right, depending on how you sort of draw the uh, hypothecated money out of the BBL and the substantial deal that CA have with Foxtel and and with Channel 7 at the moment. But yeah, roughly the second biggest T20 comp in the world is going to be the women's IPL, which is obviously very cool given how much resistance there was to this for, well, for as long as we've been covering the women's game, Jeff. Mm. I wonder, do do we have a sense of what, to what extent they might ramp up the overseas player contingents or would that stay the same? I mean, in in the men's tournament, you can't have more than four overseas players in your 11. I would have expected that to be a bit higher in the women's 11s. Yeah, that's it. So there's five initially and they've already been talking about raising that number. And look, some have put to me that this might not end up being a good thing. Got to be careful how I catch this. It'll sound like I'm, I'm talking down big money in women's cricket, and I'm absolutely not. But the idea that the women's T20 circuit 
might be so lucrative that it might start detracting from women's international cricket. Now, I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. We have seen, of course, Deandra Dotton and Lizelle Lee, two well-documented examples in 2022 of taking a step back from their national contracts to be only eligible for the domestic T20 stuff. But my sense is that even with a highly sought-after women's IPL with massive salaries and hopefully the PSL starting soon and the 100, mm. which pays, well, not as well as it should, but, you know, for what is effectively three weeks' work, a significant amount of money for most women's cricketers around the world, women's big bash league as well, that there's no need for the best women's cricketers to, to start saying, well, no, I'm not going to take a national contract. That might happen in a decade and hopefully it'll never get to that stage. And mm. it, it kind of goes to why we, we want to see administrators not repeat the same mistakes of the men's game when it comes to scheduling and giving these types of tournaments dedicated windows that don't clash with international cricket. And if they can get the schedule right, get the fundamentals right, then they shouldn't be those kind of clashes. I don't see another board beyond the big three who've already got it going having the money to be able to pay big money to players. You know, there there, there isn't another candidate for a lucrative tournament mm. to pop up. You know, there's... The fair break exception, which yep. is private money, and there's the possibility of other private capital at, at various times. If you've got a company like Viacom putting this much money into it, then other companies might decide to put their own money into things, but then they'd end up in a kind of uh, ICL war with whoever's running the game, wherever it's being run. So there, re- there really isn't that much more room for it to expand in the immediate term in terms of the tour. Um, you know, the Pakistan Super League version has already pretty much bit the dust. I mean, they'll be playing a sort of token exhibition tournament, but the fact that it was supposed to be on in the same time frame in March, well, you, you, there are only so many top quality women's internationals in the world. They can't, there aren't enough to populate two leagues at the same time. Um, and the change of leadership at at the uh, Pakistan Cricket Board with Ramiz Rajar out means that the backing for that women's PSL has evaporated and the new regime is backing away from it and hoping that nobody notices, basically. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's that that concern is relevant as yet. But even those three tournaments together, or even one of them, you know, the way this that, that pay should go in this IPL will pay more in the space of that tournament than women's players anywhere bar maybe Australia would get paid for the rest of the year full stop. Jeff, all of that's been playing out and news was broken during the women's 19s tournament which uh, it continues it's uh, it's quite a lengthy process the, the women's 19s competition because there were 16 teams to begin with it's broken into two groups of six two super sixes and then the semi-finals and then the finals so and that's been ticking over uh, but yeah the, the the players in that tournament um, they will now see these vast opportunities when they graduate to senior ranks and you know different countries performing uh, and, and being recognized in ways they never would be in, in the senior game for for example, Rwanda, who have, um, Jeff, knocked off the West Indies in the last couple of days and, and sent the West Indies packing. Ra, 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 Rwanda. Yes, here they go. I mean, the uniforms were great. The celebrations were great. Uh, bowled out West Indies for 70. I mean, that's not necessarily great news for the um, viability of the future of West Indies women's cricket, which we've been worried about for a long time. But, you know, the fact that they managed to chase it down Sure, they were six down by the end, but they managed to hold things together. Uh, innings figures of four for eight for Murray Jose Tumakunde. I mean, it's it's so heartening when you see a 
non-traditional cricket country and you know, one that you're not expecting to be in the mix getting in there um, and and going okay well here's a taste you know here's us experiencing this and and whether that can give them the incentive to to keep going to try to push for the next taste of the same yeah and for a wonder seeing the Ishimway sisters going about it you say that Marie Jose uh, Tumakunda it seems like a great name to say I like, uh, Marie Jose Perec was the first thing I thought of when I saw her name up on the scorecard the former French Olympic champion but yeah the the Ishimway sisters Henrietta who with her first ball in the fair break last year this big booming in swinging Yorker that picked up a wicket so we all watched her very closely great fielder too so yeah there are green shoots in that part of the world they won't advance to the to the next stage so There've been the two Super Six groups running after. The, even there was a playoff for the final four teams that didn't make it. So Scotland beat the USA, in Indonesia beat Zimbabwe, which bolsters that point we made last week that this tournament is really about exposing these young players to as much cricket as they can while they're all co-located there in in South Africa. So on that side of the draw, England, New Zealand, and Pakistan will go through to the final six, and then on the other side of the draw, it's likely that India and Australia will get through with one of South Africa or Bangladesh. Bangladesh have got the carryover points from having beaten Australia in in the first game of the tournament. For England, by the way, Grace Grivens, who's been a real um, a real star in domestic cricket here in the last two years for the Sunrisers in the in the regional structure played for the London Spirit last year as well in the 100. Hales from Kent originally, a left-hander who bowls a bit of spin. She made 93 from 56 balls against Ireland then took four for two against Zimbabwe in that thrashing that we touched on last week. So, yeah. So, oh, and by the way, Australia hammered India in their Super 6 game. They bowled them out for 87. So India were probably seen as joint favourites through the group stage, but Australia have towed them up. But yeah, in all probability, both sides will advance to the, the next part of the Super 6. And, and so the tournament will continue for the next couple of weeks. Another team that got tailed up was the West Indies men's team in the T20 World Cup and the review has been released. It supposedly wasn't uh, intended to be released, but it has got out. (laughs) Funny how that tends to happen with reports, especially when they've got some entertaining things in them. Um, There were the lists of players who refused to contribute to the report. Um, There were some unexpected names who did contribute to the report. Um, There was the, the conversation about how it was just far too difficult to play cricket in Tasmania, which admittedly is a a non-West Indies kind of place to play. But I do remember a bunch of West Indies players, you know, in county cricket playing in conditions that would have been probably even less pleasant than Tasmania was during a wet La Nina year. And then then there's the Shimron Hetmeyer story. The, the, the Shimron Hetmeyer tale of two halves of a bridge that were together and then they were not together and then he couldn't get across them and now he's Dennis Rodman. I mean, this is this is beautiful stuff. I don't know who wrote this report, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so the three-member panel was uh, Mickey Arthur, uh, who was the independent, Brian Lara, like the West Indies legend, and, and Patrick Thompson, who's been an administrator, and I think he's a lawyer in the Caribbean. So how it got out is interesting. Do you think it was Lara with the Rodman line? Because they go, Shimron Hetmeyer is the Dennis Rodman of West Indies cricket. Yes. Uh, you know, as in, you've got to learn how to accommodate his eccentricities because he's too good a player to not have. Is that is that a Lara? I mean, Lara is the I, I contemporary was, of the Chicago Bulls, surely. Uh, that felt like it had Mickey Arthur energy to me, as it did when they started really? the entire report with a Malcolm Gladwell quote, industrial disasters are often the result of a series of apparently unrelated events over time. Like that feels to me like something that's Mickey, Mickey, Arthur. Mickey would say. That's, that's like, but, that, but that main report, so the executive summary was popped out via media release. And 
as it was explained to me by a colleague, they just accidentally linked through to the main report, which wasn't meant to go public. And by that point, everyone downloads the PDF and it's in you know public circulation. So it was a, a bit of an administrative <laughs> fuck up on the way through. So yeah, the, the conditions in Tassie, it wasn't just about that. It was more about they didn't have time to get together to practice properly, having come straight from the CPL. It's kind of like the broader point that they're not preparing adequately for tournaments like this. And if they're not preparing well, then they can't expect to do well when the heat's on. Mm. A lot of discussion around NOCs, uh, the phrase used, they can't be weaponised. And the example of Sunil Narayan jumps out, right? He's still one of the most highly sought-after players on the T20 circuit, but he's nowhere of late for the West Indies. And uh, there's Mm. this quote in the report, which, you know, rings true. I think that West Indies cricket might cease to exist if all of their players are beholden to the will of the T20 leagues and franchise owners rather than mm-hmm. West Indies cricket. And, you know, that's not a new problem. That's been a push and pull uh, for the WICB for well, going on a decade now since the original industrial dispute with the board. But that feels more acute now. And even with Shimron Hetmeyer, right, like he would never have missed an IPL, right, or, or another major T20 comp and then there's this long passage in there about the mechanics of the bridge and when the bridge opens and when he would have needed to have left his house to have realistically made it through anyway they've obviously gone into detail on that because they don't want any more ambiguity and we were probably guilty of this Jeff and we discussed this when this news broke before the T20 World Cup we were like well this is just bullshit from West Indies cricket you know they're just trying to cover their tracks and they've had a falling out with a player it turns out like if this report's accurate there's nothing to suggest it isn't that it like it's Hetmeyer at fault here who has found himself in a position where he couldn't make it over they'd already made allowances for him like you're describing before with the Dennis Rodman kind of comparison well, and he, he still he fucked up he just didn't bother to come he just yeah. so you know they're saying he he rang him you know 10 minutes after this bridge had closed and, and, or, you know, had lifted up and said that he couldn't get across the bridge. And they're like, well, but you, you're still three hours from the airport. Yeah. Like, you would have needed to leave your house three hours ago if you were going to make your flight. Like, that's like, even if, if the bridge had been open at that point, he still wouldn't have made it. So, I mean, it's hilariously bullshit from Hetmeyer. It's like just ringing your teacher when you're wagging school and just trying to make up any excuse you can think of. You're like, oh, my dog ate my leg. Oh, my leg came off. Oh, and the dog's it's gone that way. I'm going to get another leg. Like, clearly bullshit. Like, yeah, yeah. And and hilariously so. But, yeah, it's got to it's gotta be a Lara thing because Lara was like, he was around in, in peak Michael Jordan era. Lara would be like, I'm the Michael Jordan of West Indies cricket, <laughs> therefore you can be the Dennis Rodman. You know, I mean, Shane Warne had Michael Jordan's number on his shirt yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it. Like, that was that was the era. That was their time. So if if anyone's doing Last Dance riffs and Chicago Bulls stuff, it just it really ties in with that, you know, AFL sort of culture thing of who's the, you know, oh, Scott Pendlebury's last dance or, you know, what is what what, what was the uh, the take the two line? Looking at the northern lights. These things are the Gary Ablett Jr. of the sky. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. So if you've got the Dennis Rodman of the West Indies team, who is the Scott Pendlebury of the West Indies team? Yeah. That's coming up on SEN after the break. No, well, I, I think the, uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say the final word does not believe that Shimron Hetmeyer is a, is a, a sympathiser to the North Korean regime. I should note that for the record on the way through. <laughs> um, uh, don't want to get he ourselves did color in his hair trouble. similarly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a number of funny bits uh, in this, uh, including a discussion around the red ball coach and the white ball coach. 
And I think the quote goes something like, if you've got two starting quarterbacks and you don't have one, uh, I, I guess that must be like a football adage when you need to pick one and stick with one. Uh, and that was the, the, the link they were drawing to the issues they've had with, with not being able mm. to really work out their coaching structure. And they don't have much faith in getting a big name. They go into this, that there's so much competition for coaches on the white ball circuit. Can they actually mm. pay for someone who will be able to galvanise this West Indies side? And that's what they're trying to do ahead of the 2024 T20 World Cup, which they're the co-host of with the USA. In fact, I think they're the, they're the sole host now, aren't they? Because the USA lost their hosting status when they got tied up with a blue with the ICC last year, if I... I'm remembering that correctly. Maybe the USA most, might host a couple of games, but it's like mm. it's the West Indies baby now, right? And they're saying if they want to reset ahead of that, they're going to pick their 30 players now. They're going to pick their 30 mm. players, you know, two years out or 18 months out, whatever it is, and kind of dance with the one that brung them to an extent. They also want that group, mm. that core group, as it's described in the report, to play as much test cricket as possible. And the inference there is even if they're not well-suited to test cricket, they should play in that environment so they feel like a closer kinship with the national team rather than being kind of fly-in, fly-out T20 or one-day players. Mm. So I, I can see some inherent logic in that given the Windies test team at the moment's dog shit anyway. It may as well serve some broader purpose, I guess. Mm. Yeah, you might as well pick players who will start to feel good out of it, I suppose. Although... The injury rate that they had in Australia suggests that getting picked in a test match is about the last thing that you want if you're a West Indies player at the moment because then you miss some more lucrative cricket later. But uh, therein lies the dilemma. Speaking of T20 cricket, Stephen Peter Devereaux-Smith, who would have thought? Opening the batting for the Sixers, he's been just ridiculous, absurd. Just what CA were hoping for over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. If they could get the big guns back, maybe the BBL could have an extra gear they could move into in mid-January. And, and so it's been 101 from 56 balls against Adelaide at Coffs Harbour. Then he bettered that at the SCG in the Sydney smash on Saturday night. He made 125 not out in 66 balls with nine sixes. And just before we've recorded today, he hit 66 from 33 balls against the Canes down at Bell Reeve. So he's been on a bit mm. of a tour around the country, braining them wherever he goes. And yes, yeah, Steve Smith, the T20 opener. Probably not what we saw coming, but you know, we're only 18 months away from a World Cup. Maybe he can put his hat in the ring for that job next year. Yeah, well, I mean, the flip side of that Sydney smash was David Warner, who I think was 16 off 29 um, and might have top scored as well. They got bowled out for about 70. So uh, it didn't go quite so well for Green Sydney. But, yeah, the Smith show has been exciting. I mean, maybe maybe he does open. Who knows? Uh, I'll say this. Aaron Finch isn't going to be there. Hasn't stepped down Mm. yet, but he's not going to be in the T20 World Cup in 2024. I mean, David Warner may well not be there by that point too. So maybe it is time for Smith to get a new job or, or maybe on the basis of a couple of T20 innings in a domestic league, uh, people have a tendency to get a bit far ahead of themselves and say, he's got to go to India. But the point is he does have to go to India to be there for a test series, which means that he won't be here for the final. Mm. So... If he does this stuff, if he plays the Usman Khawaja 2016 season, was it, where he just absolutely killed everything that came his way and they make it to the final, well, he won't be there. That's true. And that final, I bet, will be the Sixers against the Scorchers again for the second year in a row Mm. and the sixth time in... 
I think it'll be the sixth time in 12 completed seasons where it's been Perth up against the, the Magenta Sydney. So in Perth's case, uh, they're going to finish top of the ladder, I think seven points clear of third or something like that. So three and a half games clear of where they needed to be to make it into the top two. And the reason why that's relevant is they've got the McIntyre Final Five system, which which was um, such a wonderful way to sort out the footy finals until 1990. So that means with one final, with a double chance, you get straight through to the grand final. And that'll be the Sixers against the Scorchers next week. And the other sides to make it to the final five are the Heat, the Gades and the Thunder with the Strikers, Canes and Stars missing out. The Stars only won three games, Jeff, so they've had another mare. I'm not sure the Stars have ever won a final, have they? I think they've been sort of one of these sides who've uh, had... You know, strong sides on the park in theory, but never been able to. Oh, no, sorry, they made that one final they, against they made the it Renegades. Into a final, yes. yeah, where, where they choked in the final, didn't they? I mm. suppose not having Glenn Maxwell this year um, hasn't helped with all of that. But yeah, the Smith thing, kind of like Elise Perry, really, isn't it? Where Elise Perry got told her strike rate wasn't good enough and thought, well, okay, I'm the best player in the world, therefore I can adapt. Maybe it's the same for Smith. He's kind of shitty with people writing mm. him off as a short form player. He's like, well. I will show you that I can change my game because yeah. I have hand-eye coordination up there with the greatest to play the game, given the quirks involved with the way he sets up at the crease and can do stuff like this. I remember a, a, a 50 ball 90 odd he made at Cardiff in a T20 international way back in 2015. Yep. And we've used that as a reference point a few times with Smith that he's got that he's got that gear, he's got that club, he's, he can do that thing. Mm. It's just that it's rarely been his job to do that. Normally, he's been seen as the you know the middle order glue or the or the safety valve or something like that. But you know, given yeah. freedom of expression at the top of the list, where you're meant to go for it inside the power play, different story. Two centuries back to back, and he was an Australian T20 player as a fixture, really long before he was yeah. an Australian yeah. Test player as a fixture. So he was seen differently at the start of his career. He's also going to have a little side trip to Sussex. He is to play some county cricket, which. So I found this very amusing. I, I don't think there was much seriousness in the people, most of the people trying to get annoyed about this in England, saying that, you know, why would you let Australians have Ashes preparation by letting them play in England? A, the last time Steve Smith played in Ashes in England, he had been banned for 16 months, hadn't played a test match in 16 months, and walked out there and ransacked 774 runs in about three innings, <laughs> to international players have been coming to play county cricket for a really long time. This is not a new thing. It, it, it has happened quite a bit before, believe it or not. Uh, and then sometimes they've also played test matches in England. It's been going on for about 100 years. Oh, well, they don't get to play in the Sheffield Shield when England come to Australia. Yes, there are six teams in the Sheffield Shield. The standard is quite high. It's used as a development vehicle for state players there's not a lot of room for other players to come in there are 18 teams in England uh, and if you're being generous you could say there are probably a few spots that go to players who are not going to be contending for a test berth anytime soon so yeah it was comical really the attempt to get annoyed about something that is so completely standard and so completely run-of-the-mill but you got to uh, got to get some clicks somewhere I guess yeah, so Division Two County Championship, I love it. You know, he's playing at Worcestershire, Leicestershire, and at home at Hove against Glamorgan, where we play against Martis Labuschagne, as it happens, who used the who used the County Championship Division Two to prepare beautifully for 2019, and I think he made five centuries in that stint, got in the squad, and of course replaced Smith at Lords. But you know, the truth is, this is not 
even close to the standard of the Sheffield Shield. You know, there wouldn't be many England players. I'm just trying to frame this correctly. If you're an England test player, would you get in the Sheffield Shield? Of course you would. But how many of them could realistically come down and play a couple of rounds of Sheffield Shield before the first test in Brisbane anyway? Like it just mm. doesn't work that way. So it's not it's not really an apples and apples comparison. And yeah, there's the usual kind of screaming from the margins as you always get whenever you have a conversation around England domestic cricket. I find it funny that those who who want to talk of the county championship being the greatest comp- sporting competition in the world, bar none. And I love the championship, as you know. I don't need to sort of stake my credentials, but I will as a caveat for saying that those who believe it's the best ever, but if you want to include the best player in the world or near enough to it, mm. oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Because no. of the test no. that, well, you can't have both, right? They're not yeah. consistent. And look, it is more contested, this space, than before. Trevor Bayless, when he was coach, was frustrated at the fact that Marnus Labashain and others could come and get a build-up in England before an Ashes series. Ben Stokes was asked about this in Pakistan back in December and, and was a little bit combative in his response for kind of similar reasons. But good on Sussex, who have been a side in development for a couple of years there, for going out and having the foresight to pick up Smith. It's not as though he would have been short of suitors, but seeing them as the destination club. And look, who knows, it might open the door for Smith to play in the championship more often into the future, as it has been for someone like Hashim Amla, who, by the way, announced his retirement from all cricket this week. So good on Hashim Amla, who finished with South Africa a couple of years ago, but played in, in two championship-winning seasons for Surrey in 2018 and, and last year in, in 2022. So, yeah, I found it hard to get worked up about this, but, <laughs> but I, I really did. It's, it's going to be... Uh, we saw some really good contributions this week from oh. retired pros who said that the contribution that having overseas players with them made in their careers was considerable. Jonathan Agnew said yeah. that when he played with Andy Roberts, it made a massive difference. Now, yes, a bit different with Andy Roberts being there the whole season. Smith will be there for a month. But there'll be these young players, and Sussex have been, by design, developing a young core group in the last couple of years. They'll get to share a dressing room with Steve Smith, Australia's best batter since Bradman, for a month. That's going to have a big effect, as it will for um, the bowlers of Worcestershire, Leicestershire, Angla Morgan getting to bowl at Steve Smith. That'll be a good thing for the competition and yeah. for the development of England cricketers coming through the ranks. So, yeah, might it give a small marginal gain for Smith? I don't know, maybe. But Smith will also have a tour game to play, presumably, um, maybe an intra-club game. Then there'll be the World Test Championship final all before the first test match. He's not going to be short of cricket. He was going to get plenty of cricket in regardless before they play England at Edgbaston in July. He'll have been in June, rather. He'll have been in England for a long time by that stage. Just on that, Jeff. So I think that's likely to be the second week of June, the WTC final. I, got, I had a look at the Future Tours yep. program to try and work this out. There's two Roughly weekends. It's, it's, it's around the, the 6th probably that well, it would start. Well, we, we assume it will be, right? But they've marked out two weeks of the FTP for it. But the first week of that, the 1st to the 4th of June, is when England are playing Ireland. So the broadcasters wouldn't, I, I suppose, never have those two test matches clashing. There was a women's test that clashed with the WTC final in, in 2021. But I reckon what they'll do is they'll let England play Ireland in the first week of that two-week window. And in the second week of it, Australia will play the WTC final. And maybe when England are playing Ireland, that could be the week where Australia play an intra-club. It's a shame in a way they can't play Ireland, Jeff, because that would have been the perfect setup that both England and Australia play Ireland in a test match before the Ashes. But I just can't 
quite see how they how they square that unless they played Ireland the week before England played them and yeah there's been no there's been no talk of that so far yeah the only way it would work is in that last week of May um, which would be inconvenient because you'd be running a marathon and I would uh, not be in the country yet so <laughs> you know I'd love Australia to play Ireland well, in a yeah, yeah, at, Lords, well, well it's a bank holiday weekend in fairness I mean they, they could get over there and play it um, on um I suppose it'd be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, a four-day test match. Let's not give them ideas. Maybe they should play it at the Grange in Scotland so we can go as well. We'll see. But um, they'll have to play something, Jeff, even if it is one of those shitty intra-clubs like you went down for uh, in 2019. I'm not a huge fan of those you know, non-competitive games. When Darren Lehman was coach, he wanted them to play first-class cricket because it meant something. Even if it's a you know, a, against a, a, a weaker county side not turning out their best team, I reckon that's better prep than, than playing each other. And they may not have enough players here to play each other either. I mean, presumably mm. now post-COVID, we're going to get back to kind of normal-sized squads unless they were to fly out 25 players as they did in 19. I don't know. and But I've heard nothing of that either. I don't know if you've heard anything about what they might do before that World Test Championship final. I haven't heard, but yeah, last time it was to do with having an Australia A squad there and having a, a vast quantity of players to draw from and you know it's a squad of 25 or so that they were able to put those um I think they were teams of 12 that played rather than 11s that played against each other in that weird intra-club but the time uh, the time honored Graham Hick 11 against the Brad Haddon well Graham Hick 12 against the Brad Haddon 12 which will live on all (laughs) of their cricket info pages for the rest of their cricketing lives and the other point here Jeff I suppose is that CA wouldn't be keen to talk about what Australia will do before the World Test Championship final because they may not make it if they lose 4-0 to mm. India. They'd look rather silly to put those plans in place publicly if they if they do fall short in that unlikely scenario that we went through last mm. week. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, it all remains to be confirmed, but one good result in the next few weeks and they're okay. All right, Jeff, a lot more to get through in the second half of the show, but before taking a break, time for a bit of... Mm, nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge It's the game we play on The Final Word With the people who listen to the show They take it upon themselves To help us fund this program By sending in contributions That are not normal numbers They're very specific numbers Because they're cricket numbers They mean something in cricketing terms And we have to figure out what they mean Helen Wilson is our Nerd Pledger A new pledger Welcome to the show Helen £3.16 is the number. So it's 316, Mm. the decimal point may or may not be there. It can float. You can turn it around. You can flip it upside down. You can interpret it any way you want. What does 316 mean? We did have a 316 a few months ago and Daniel Norcross pulled off one of the great solves at the first time of asking. Uh, The clue involved a player who made an impression in 1986 and then it said that this player or us on the show had been making an impression since then. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And Norcross figured out that it was about Jeremy Coney because we'd been doing Jeremy Coney impressions on the show for years. And so we had made an impression of him and he made an impression in 1986. 
and he scored 300s and 1650s in his career, so it was 316. I mean, worth recapping that because that was just that was some <laughs> sparkling intellectual acuity off the top from Daniel Norcross. Uh, 316, we've talked about Stone Cold Steve Austin before on the show. 316, nothing to do with cricket, but Barrett's and Duresen likes to bring up a wrestling connection wherever possible. And that's possible. the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. da 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 pow, pow. Because this 316 is coming in pounds, I thought, all right, I'm probably looking for something English. Um, 31.6 would not be a flattering average for either a batter or a bowler, so probably neither of those. Could be a team score. Uh, England did make an innings of 316 in the timeless test in Durban in 1939 that we talk about all the time on Storytime, our history show on the weekends. Uh, in one day cricket, England made 316 once. It was the only game they won on the 2013-14 tour um, when they went to the Wacker. Remember, I think they were about 5-0 down in the seven-match ODI series yeah. after being whitewashed in the tests and finally got a win. Uh, ben Stokes, central, unsurprisingly, made 70, took four wickets. But that's probably not what a, an England cricket supporter would be wanting to reminisce about if we assume that indeed we are dealing with an England cricket supporter. So what if I go somewhere else? What if I go to the person I would like to call the most influential English, non-English player? Apologies to Kevin Peterson. You're out. Andy Flowers in. The guy who formed, the guy who shaped modern England test cricket with the men's team in that era that he was in charge. Now, we think of him when he played with Zimbabwe as the pillar. We always talk about his runs. We talk about that crazy tour to India where he made the double hundred and the hundred and the other hundred and made like 480 runs in four innings, whatever it was. We talk about his dozen test centuries. We talk about him averaging 51, which is still crazy, by the way, because nobody averages 50 in test cricket. You know, I, mm. I know we grew up in the era where half the Australian team did, but it just doesn't happen. You know, there are a handful of players historically who've done it with the 20 innings caveat. There's only one Sri Lankan player who's ever done it. There's kind of one New Zealand player, like technically Conway and Mitchell are above 50 at the moment, but they've just qualified with the 20 innings and they'll probably drop down later. Nobody from Bangladesh has done it. One Zimbabwe player, and that's Andy Flower. I mean, if you think about how much Zimbabwe have battled, the idea that they would have a player who averaged above 50 in test cricket legitimately over a long career seems very unlikely but when we talk about his batting we don't talk about his glove work we have never on the show discussed the wicket keeping of Andy Flower because he made all those runs in games that he spent the other half of squatting down behind the stumps mm. again and again and again 160 test dismissals 173 one day dismissals which makes a combination of 316 international cricket dismissals for Andy Flower. Not a thing he's celebrated for. There's not a lot of big compilations on YouTube of, you know, Andy Flower's 20 greatest dismissals or whatever. I found one clip of one dismissal, which is a great one, by the way. He's he's standing up to the stumps to Gary Brent. I don't know if you remember Gary Brent, but he was a quickish... I think I do. Uh, ...right armour who bowled for Zimbabwe. Played quite a lot of one-day cricket, didn't play okay. a lot of test cricket. But he, he was... He was no slouch, and Flowers keeping right up to the stumps. And there's a, a, a very young Torfik Umar who's they're playing against Pakistan, and a ball goes down the leg side, and Torfik Umar just switches his feet over, you know, just as you do, overbalances a bit, swaps the feet, and Flower, he's already there. He's outside the leg stump. He's just like whispered across, 
predicted where this ball's going. I don't know if it was a setup or not, but he gets it, like takes it on the inside hip, whips the leg bail off as the feet switch around. It's it's mint. It's absolutely perfect. And you're like, okay, this guy knew what he was doing with the gloves. When they inducted him into the ICC Hall of Fame, uh, the only person on the Talking Heads clip who talked about his wicket-keeping was Farouk Engineer, <laughs> uh, fine wicket-keeper himself, but he was like, talk about Andy Flowers' wicket-keeping. So, um, yes, he goes on to coach England and all the rest of it. And the other bit that stands out is that for a player with such a big career, his whole test career was done in just under 10 years didn't get to debut until about 24, I think, when Zimbabwe came in, just over 10 years for his one-day career because he made that principled stand at the 2003 World Cup and protested Robert Mugabe's regime in Zimbabwe and never played for them again. So it's kind of sad in a way when you look back at his numbers and think, well, he might have had a few more years in there if, if it had been a different era and a different set of circumstances. But he was a man of principle and, and that was it, just short of 5,000 test runs, just short of 7,000 one-day runs and 316 dismissals behind the stumps, Andy Flower. I love it. Uh, look, I, I have interviewed Andy Flower about his career before. That was for the greatest season that was series we did on the 99 World Cup. And as you were talking then, Jeff, I thought maybe we should move that series onto the final word feed at some point as well. So that if you weren't a final word listener back in 2019, I think that was like a 12 part series we made going back 20 years to the 99 World Cup in England. And yeah, Andy Flower was an amazing guest. In fact, he was quite emotional talking about his homeland. He's been back to Zimbabwe in the last couple of years, last four or five years as well, with I think it's his daughter he's been back with. So whilst there is that long period of exile where he wasn't able to go back for security reasons, he has returned in, in recent years, which is a, a lovely thing because he was, well, arguably hard to think of anyone else who, who'd be down as the, the greatest Zimbabwean international cricketer to ever play. That's Nerd Pledge for this week. If you want to send us a Nerd Pledge, go to patreon.com slash thefinalword. You can help us keep making the show and uh, you can be part of the fun. All right, break for us. When we return, we're going to do another lap around the world. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. We were talking briefly around the England-Ireland test match that's coming up in June before the break. Uh, staying with that theme of Ireland, Ross Adair, what a great story. On what has turned into quite an important little tour there between Ireland in Zimbabwe over the last couple of weeks. So, Jeff, you picked up on this last week that Ross Adair, who is an Ulster rugby centre and the brother of Mark Adair, um, has been picked to play for Ireland and making it a great fist of it as well. Andrew Beach, who is a listener to the show, sent this through and, and wanted to point this out because it's not often that you get – he's the older brother as well. It's not like he's trailing along. He he had a career, tried to crack a, a career as a rugby player, You know, had played cricket as a teenager. Uh, his brother, in the meantime, has forged a really strong Ireland career. And uh, and so Ross said, well, you know, I fancy a bit of that. I'm going to come back into the fold. And, and there he is, uh, made runs in a chase of 150, 65 of 47 balls, uh, helped Ireland pick up a win, which could be crucial to their hopes of trying to qualify for the next World Cup. Yeah, and look, Zimbabwe ended up winning that series 2-1 uh, in no small part to their recruit, Gary Balance. So... It was explained to me last year that Balance would have to wait a while in domestic cricket before Zimbabwe would pick him, but it's turned out that he's straight into the national team. So he made his T20 international debut for Zimbabwe. He never played a T20I for England when he was 
registered over here. But yeah, made thirty odd to steer them in a in a in a low chase to get them the series two one. So now a dual national in the one day format as well. Uh, Zimbabwe won the first one dayer on Duckworth Lewis and lost the second, but in the second, balance made a half century. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch in the next little while. Gary Balance, who is now most well known uh, for the Azim Rafiq saga, would that be the right word for it now? Given so much has transpired over the last two or three years since those revelations were made public, uh, yeah, um, that he's now seen fit to part ways with Yorkshire, where he was the club captain, and move countries back to where he was born in Zimbabwe. So, you know, in a really crude terms, like that's going to be good for Zimbabwean cricket because they're going to have a guy who's of international quality turning out in their 11s. But there's a bigger picture at play here as well. And Well, it's it's a strange kind of situation, though, to have a, a guy whose yeah. county career wraps up because of repeated racist behaviour over years yeah, and years yeah. then going back to a country where race relations are such a point of tension and, and where, you know, where racism's been just an integral, inherent part of white existence there for a, a long time and, and then the kind of violence directed against white Zimbabweans during Mugabe's time and all of the rest of it. I mean, it's a... It's a it's a peculiar marriage to put Gary Balance together with Zimbabwean cricket. Yeah, it is. And I just want to stress, I'm purely talking about in the middle where he'll be an asset off the field and the broader politics you're talking about. That's a whole other thing uh, and, and can't be divorced from the first. So I suppose over time he'll have to give interviews and speak about this and do as all international cricketers do. So one will keep an eye on on the final word throughout 2023. In other World Cup Super League action coming up this week, now this is quite relevant, this series that, we were referring to before in Zimbabwe. This third one day coming up tomorrow is huge for Ireland. If they can win it, they leapfrog back into eighth spot over the top of Sri Lanka and the West Indies. Now, the West Indies are finished. They don't play any more games. Sri Lanka do play one more series, but there are eight automatic qualification spots and Ireland in their final game will sneak back into eighth. They've had a pretty good campaign, Ireland, remembering they beat England in a one day at Southampton. They beat... If I recall correctly, the Windies 3-0 when they took them on a couple of years ago. They went passably last year as well when they played a lot of cricket. So they could be into one of the automatic qualifying positions. Now, Sri Lanka have still got three games to come in New Zealand. They're in March. Sri Lanka would need to win two of those three to go back over the top of Ireland. So if Ireland win there and win the series in Harare, then they'll be in a pretty good position. But um, the sleeping giant in all of this is South Africa. Now, they have forfeited their series to Australia, which was meant to be played right now, actually. It was the, the series that was meant to be through mid to late January. They gave that up in order to play in the SA20, which is going on at the moment. But what they will get to do is play England at home in the middle of the SA20. Would you believe, Jeff, they're calling a, a brief hiatus to the T20 competition to allow South Africa's men to host England. Half of the England team are already in South Africa playing in the T20, by the way in three one-day internationals. They start later this week on Thursday, I think it is. Now, South Africa, who are way down in about 12th spot, they can get to eighth so long as they beat England, the world champions, 2-1. And then in a rescheduled COVID series that started two years ago, they played one game against the Dutch that was washed out. Then there was COVID in the camps. It was called off. They're going to play those last two one-dayers. So if they beat England 2-1, and beat the Dutch effectively 2-0 after the washout, they will just sneak in to position eighth, provided 
Sri Lanka don't sweep New Zealand 3-0, in which case Sri Lanka will still keep their nose ahead of them. So I doubt Sri Lanka will beat New Zealand 3-0 in New Zealand, although they'll be incentivized because if they don't, anyone who doesn't make that top eight is going to be duking it out. I think it's back in Zimbabwe, isn't it? The World Cup qualifier later this year, Jeff. I think that's in in, in Zimbabwe. Um, and that'll be a comp that, that plays out and decides the last couple of spots. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of why the World Cup Super League started. It was to give relevance to all of these bilateral one-day series. It's, in a way, a great shame that this will be the last last of it because after this particular World Cup cycle, the World Cup goes back to 14 teams and they, they do away with the Super League. So it'll be one cycle and done. But we're getting a pretty exciting finish. Well, if there's one thing the Dutch love, it's knocking South Africa out of a World Cup. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily write them off. A little trickier across 50 overs, but um, South Africa have been all over the place of late. Yeah, you you wouldn't uh, expect them to beat England 2-1, but they're perfectly capable of doing it if they get their shit together on home turf as well. Um, and like you say, that is the reason this existed. It does make these things interesting. You know, if you had just generally said, oh, the Dutch have two make-up games to play against South Africa, that wouldn't necessarily be everybody's first port of call with viewing. But, you know, if they get those wins against England... Who knows, it might just be the most gripping contest of the last couple of years. Well, and, and I, yeah, I kind of, to back over that first point, it's really sad. Like, all of these 13 nations have played 24 one-days across the cycle, so eight series of three. That's what it'll be by the time it's all finished in a couple of months. Like, it's been great for global cricket. The Zimbabwe, Netherlands, Ireland, countries who don't usually get access to the big handful of countries have, have, have done that. They've done the rounds. They've done a couple of laps of the world. It's been good for their development. We've seen that with Zimbabwe. They've directly linked the World Cup Super League to what they were able to achieve at last year's T20 World Cup. And look, the Netherlands are going to finish last. They've only won a couple of games out of their 19 so far, but they never would have played 19 one-dayers against 12 full-member nations until until this started. So hopefully in the post 2023 World Cup world that there is some way of keeping the integrity of this structure through the FTP, although I although I, I do doubt it. In the women's 50-over game, uh, Australia toweling up Pakistan as expected to win that 3-0 in the end. Uh, Phoebe Litchfield, 67 not out, another notable score from that young player that was chasing down a Pakistan total in less than 20 overs. Pakistan making 125, Darcy Brown three wickets, and then Australia got to bat first in the third game, so they, they made a mot, so they could have made more, really. I mean, they ended up losing some wickets late and finished up nine down, but Beth Mooney got them off to a flyer, 133 off 105. That's her third century for Australia in the format. But more front of mind with the women's team at the moment, would be Ash Gardner's contribution to, uh, let's call it, the discussion. I mean, God, I'm so sick of that framing that we have to have conversations about things. But coming up to playing a game on January 26, having that scheduled there, she made a very eloquent statement about their Indigenous heritage and about the fact that January 26th is a day of mourning for the people that who are close to her and that she cares about and that treating it as a, a celebratory day is is not something that she wants to be a part of. She's still going to play the game while wanting to make her feelings extremely clear that, that that's not the way that she thinks that things should be done. And, you know, I mean, she got some predictable backlash, but she got a lot of support as well. I wrote a column about Ash Gardner 
after she was player of the match in the 2018 T20 World Cup final in, in Antigua, saying that I reckon one day she could captain the Aussie team. And, you know, statements like this can't reinforce that she is a proper leader. As you say, she talks of the hurt and mourning that's associated with the 26th of January for Indigenous Australians. She's a, a Mirawari woman, very proud of her Indigenous heritage. And look, um, you know, a lot of the criticism of Ash was that, well, why are you playing then? Why are you playing? Well, the same can be said of you, Jeff. Why are you playing a game of cricket on the 26th of January? You know, like it, it can be said of anyone. It's a public holiday. The reason why there's cricket being played that day, the reason why Australia have one of their three T20s against Pakistan on the 26th of January is because it makes sense to play cricket on that day. The point here is not to remove cricket from it necessarily, although we'll come to that in a sec. It's about advancing the case for changing the date to be somewhere else in the Australian summer, and there are multiple options for that, and we went to that on our on our show a couple of years ago when we spoke about this very topic. It would have been back in 2021. Now, this has been added to today. Just before we were preparing to record this, Jeff, Ben Horn had a piece in the News Court papers talking about next year, 26 January 2024, which is a Friday, and in the FTP, that is when the second test match between Australia and the West Indies is, is likely to be. That's where it's been allocated. So that's a tricky one, right? Public holiday, again. So money from ticket sales, the chance for people to go to the cricket on in the middle of summer and all the rest of it, regardless of where that test match is going to be played. But CA have tried to distance themselves from that date in the past, and presumably there'll be more to play out there as the schedule gets better down for the next Australian summer. But, yeah, interesting that a topic like this... We never would have seen this kind of debate, Jeff, even a few years ago, I reckon. But yeah, Ash Gardner has added to it this week and good on her for doing so. And as for what happens next year, well, well who knows? But it all adds to the, the momentum, I suppose, Jeff, of the, the National Day eventually being changed. Having a National Day that is a public holiday, that's a good thing. Yep. That's a nice thing to have, you know, as long as it's something that can include everybody and, and that everybody can get behind. Having a National Day that is about one group of people screwing over another group of people, not so good. So it seems fairly straightforward to me, but uh, I suppose it's also straightforward that if you want to have a test match and there is a public holiday weekend, then it makes practical sense to do it. I think it would be possible to stage the match without turning it into a day of pageantry and doing the kind of rah-rah Australia stuff with it, but it would be peculiar to have a national representative team playing on that day and not be making a big deal of it being a national day. That would be a very pointed thing to do in a way, and I think that's what the Australian women's team plan to do. They'll be wearing their Indigenous strip. You know, They won't be bigging up Australia Day as uh, the day of the birthplace of our nation and all that kind of bullshit. They'll be trying to mark it in a reflective, sober sort of way rather than a celebratory, buoyant kind of way. Yeah, and, and I think how well they pull that off might inform whether they play a test match on that date next year. Like if that's if that's too difficult a needle to thread and it becomes a massive story for all the wrong reasons from CA's perspective, that is, and it's a blow up, then maybe they'll be more inclined to, to try and try something different next year. But yeah, a, a public holiday on a Friday in the middle of summer, like that's cash money for CA. So I think their first point would be to try and get the test away on that day if they can against the West Indies, which is already a challenging fixture to get people to, as we know, um, having seen poor crowds in, in Perth and Adelaide um, back in November and December. 
What's going on with the Olympics this week? I saw a few little bits and pieces, but I know you're more up to date with this than me. Yeah, oh, look, I'd say this wasn't a good week for cricket as far as the Olympics are concerned. So reports coming out of India that the 2028 bid has been knocked on the head and is not happening. Those reports were quite effusive. It was like presented as an exclusive in the paper and, and all the rest of it. But the Twitter thread that followed, the Los Angeles 2028 official account replied to it saying, this isn't right, no decision's been made yet. Then there was a subsequent report on Crick Info saying that it's all very much still up in the air. But two points in that Crick Info story that jumped out at me is somewhat troubling. One is that they're, they're now angling for a six-team competition, not an eight-team competition, and it won't have a qualification tournament before it, as anticipated. It'll be back to the bloody rankings, which we know are fast in T20 cricket. So the explanation given in the yarn is that they, they being the IOC and the, and the ICC in their discussions, they're a little bit concerned about the quality of the products. The more teams you have, the less it's standard, I suppose. Now, I would have thought that eight teams is perfectly reasonable on that front, but we should get used to this. I mean, you know, when it comes to talking about the, the diluting talent and so on, this will be where the WTC ends up. You know, I know it's a different format, a different thing, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all when the World Test Championships unpicked in five years' time, as I expect it will be, that it ends up being a watered-down model with six teams and we start having like kind of like the top six being the benchmark rather than the top eight or the top 10 or the top 12. Of course, there being 12 full-member nations. So, so yeah, rankings ahead of qualification as well. What a missed opportunity. You know, imagine having a year of T20Is with the context of an Olympic berth around the corner. I mean, you know, we probably all remember Ned Zelich in 1992 getting Australia through to the football tournament, the Olympic Games, that brilliant goal in injury time. Like, that's an iconic Australian Olympic moment, even though it didn't even happen in the Olympic Games. It was an Olympic qualifier. And, you know, stepping back a little bit from this, it's just worth reminding everybody that getting T20 to the Olympic Games was never about having 20 or 30 or 50 teams in it. That was never going to happen. It was always going to be a maximum of eight teams for logistical reasons, kind of like what you saw last year, Jeff, at the at the Commonwealth Games. Any more than that, and it's hard to use one or two grounds, right? But that doesn't mean that countries like Brazil and Romania and others won't, who've had high-profile players like Roberto Moretti and Pavel Florin, they're never going to be Olympians, but they will benefit, especially Brazil, as we've talked about many times by cricket being there because cricket being there unlocks NOC funding and thus gives them extra revenue stream as they develop their game. So that's the bigger picture in terms of the Olympics. It's about, yeah, it'll be an elite competition, but it'll have a broader benefit for all of the nations that have access to their NOC pots of money and Brazil being a a massive Olympic nation, for example. If you had an Olympic cricket campaign in 2028, You'd think that Shubman Gill would be front and centre. The the rising power in Indian batting, uh, just the small matter of a one-day international double century, just knocked out one of those. I mean, there still haven't been a lot of those. I remember how absolutely pumped the entire cricket world was when Tendulkar was the first one to get there, like mm. one of those days that Crick Info literally crashed because everybody <laughs> was trying to read the ball-by-ball ball tracker in that match against South Africa, I think it was, and then Sawag gets one not long after that, and, and you know, they're away. That's in the men's game, obviously. Belinda Clark had already done it about 15 years earlier in the women's game, as we talked about last week. But, yeah, they've, they've been a, a few more stacked up since then. Fakhar Zaman... Chris Gale, Martin Guptill, just to rattle off a few off the top of my head. There's probably a few more as well. I think Rohit um, Sharma's got a couple of them. 
Oh, yeah, he's got about three of them, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> just the small matter of the three doubles in one day cricket. But um, Shubman Gill joining the club now? Yeah, yeah. And I guess linking that through, if there are six teams, not eight, that gives India a better chance of winning the gold medal, which, you know, we all know that's the most yeah, six important teams. thing. If you show up to an Olympic event and you've got a 50% chance of winning a medal... Yeah, I mean, well, maybe they should go. Feel like that great well, well, they, could, they could they could take this to the natural extension. Maybe they should go full nineteen hundred and have an Indian team against another team, so they can mm. guarantee they'll finish. Because in that the it was French team. Well, yeah, it was the French and the English then, but it was effectively mm. two English teams. But yeah, Shubham Gill is going to be already is a, a bloody star. Two hundred and eight from one hundred and forty nine balls there at Hyderabad. New Zealand came close to hauling down three fifty, by the way, thanks to Michael Bracewell, who was a. A new man on the scene last year, 140 from 78 balls. He's a contender for the best new talent logie, I think, this year, Michael Bracewell. Um, yeah, the second one day was less competitive, though, with New Zealand skittles for 108. <laughs> less competitive. Less competitive. I, my less competitive. theory was just that New Zealand were like, Coley can't get 100 if we set them 100 <laughs> to win. Um, yeah. And it worked perfectly. Yeah, so Shami in the wickets there. Uh, and our final stop on our lap around the world. Jeff, you brought this to my attention. If the Ahmed... Everybody's favourite 32-year-old who looks like he's 52. Everybody's worried about what's going on in the UAE League and the SAT20 League, apart from our podcast, by the way. We've not even mentioned it. Mm. Or the Big Bash. What about the original Big January League, the Bangladesh mm-hmm. Premier League, playing for Fortune Barishal? Iftikas hit 57 not out mm. from 26 balls, 100 not out from 45 balls, and 56 not out in 34 deliveries, all in the last week, three player of the match performances. What a guy. What a guy. And, you know, we're not the only people who wonder about the duration of his years upon the earth because um, I came across this from Abhishek Mukherjee who was writing about the the cha-cha discourse in, in Urdu, the, the, the respectful phrase that means uncle is being applied to Iftikhar Ahmed, who's being addressed as Chacha by just about everybody, the Uncle Iftikhar, because he's 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 knocking around, as you say, you know, he's had a, had a weathered existence, um, but he's really leaning into it. He's he's enjoying being the star of the show at the moment, and so when his teammates are giving him stick online, he's giving it back. So he's he's now playing up the idea that he's even younger than he says that he is, and, and so he's he's getting stuck into Nasi. Shah for being too old and saying, I remember remember when I was a kid, I, he, was, he was tweeting this stuff out. He's like, when I was a kid, I used to love watching Nassim Shah bowl. You know, he was <laughs> growing up watching him as one of my inspirations. And they've all been getting into each other. Shut Up Khan's been jumping in there as well. So uh, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun on, on Pakistan cricket Twitter during the week, if that's a corner of the world that you're familiar with. I hope Iftika responded with, ah, shut up your face. That's all we can hope for mm-hmm. there. And on that Overused joke. That is the end of the final word mm. for this week. Um, That's when you know it's it's time to end the show. When you're like, yep, I'm just recycling old material here. It wasn't even that good to begin with. <laughs> That's when you know it's time. But yeah, it's, we, We've, we've, we've feel, done our dash. I feel like we've done a lot. It's been a while since mm. we've done about 12 topics in an episode. So I hope you've enjoyed the chat we've had here today. We'll um, have a lot more in the feed this week. Jeff, I saw you popped out a couple of the old archival apps over the weekend in lieu of a story time, but you'll have a story time this week with uh, mm-hmm. Norcross and there'll be a revisit special with me, so. me, which will come up hopefully before we go to India. We're still working that through. Once a, a quiet time and a busy time for us because I'm, you know, up 
stupid hours with with Peggy and um, trying to get my um, ducks in a row for India. But also um, we're trying badly to uh, have a, a, a little bit of a break where we can, or at least a couple of days away from stuff. So, but the idea is um, we'll we'll have um, a, another story time in the feed on the weekend. I'm also having a conversation with Fraser Stewart um, about um, the MCC's updated um, running out the non-striker man CAD what would you call it? It wasn't, it wasn't an updated law. The law remains the same, but updated information around the law and the... Definition. Definition, that's it. So I think um, what I might do is have that chat separately and dump it in the feed midweek, a little, uh, little bonus episode. How's that? Mm, why not? Why not? If we're, um, we're, we're used to putting out shows every day after the summer, we might as well just, just keep on doing it. All right, this has been The Final Word, Series 13, Episode 19. Thank you, Linesman. Not that they exist anymore, I've noticed, on the Australian Open. Thank you, Ball Kids. They still, oh, yeah? they still do exist. And um, okay. we'll do it all again soon. Bye. Boop. 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 Let's go. I had to go about